Before we start today, I want to let you know that this episode contains discussions of child abuse and audio recordings of children in distress. This episode also contains swearing. From the San Francisco Public Press, you're listening to Civic, where we investigate the policies and institutions that govern our lives. In this episode, we continue our series on the way family courts handle custody cases involving allegations of domestic abuse and child abuse. It's crazy to me how how people can make money on the suffering of children and just be so okay with themselves. It does not make any type of sense to me that people could do that. I'm Sylvie Sturm. For several months now, I've been taking a deep dive into the way family courts deal with domestic and child abuse allegations. To recap, our last episode was all about parental alienation. That's when a family court lawyer hires an expert witness to say that one parent brainwashed their child into lying about the other parent's abuse. And as I reported on this, I discovered that while abuse leads to serious trauma, the pain that it causes is just so much worse when family court judges dismiss real claims of abuse. So this whole time, I've never settled on a satisfying answer for why. Why is there so much denial around abuse? Like, even when I talk about these stories to people that I know, I keep hearing the same thing. They say, no way, that's unbelievable. It's an automatic reaction to deny that it's happening. Do we just want to believe that bad things only happen to bad people? Well, if we do, that's just wrong. Because the people I heard from were not bad people at all, actually just the opposite. Their courage was astounding. They were stepping up to save their children, or they were standing up against people who were abusing them. And that courage was especially impressive considering how much they have to lose. I talked to parents who were banned by the court from seeing their kids for years after bringing up abuse allegations. And I talked to kids who were treated like criminals for revealing their abuse. We'll hear from one of those kids in a minute. First, though, I want to talk about another possibly more nefarious reason for denying abuse. Money. I mentioned expert witnesses in our last episode. They make a lot of money testifying on parental alienation. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Those same expert witnesses, the ones who testify that a kid's been brainwashed, a family court judge will often appoint those same people to reverse that brainwashing that they just testified to in court. And then they charge both parents tens of thousands of dollars for putting their child through a program that will make them recant their allegations whether the parent consented to it or not. It's a process called reunification therapy. 
The goal is to get the child to recant accusations and then embrace the parent that they say abuses them. There are reunification camps all over the country that hold children for days or weeks at a time and put them through these programs, often against their will. And even when the kids do comply, they recant their allegations, they accept that they'll have a relationship with their parent. Even then, the reunification aftercare therapy can still go on for years at a cost of hundreds of dollars a month. It's not unusual for a family to end up paying $200,000 or more for the privilege of reunifying their child with a parent that they say abuses them. The whole reunification process, it begins with a judge's order. So it's court-ordered, and the judge decides that the wanted parent should have no contact with their kid for three months. The reason for the ban is that the judge has decided they have to sever that relationship with the wanted parent in order for the reunification process to work. And that three-month visitation ban, that can be extended any time. If a parent tries to reach out to the child, there are all sorts of reasons why the judge will decide that the parent still can't see the child three months later, six months later. Sometimes it goes on for years. So after that no-contact order is in place, a team of two or three, sometimes four people, called transporters, they'll take the child away to the camp. That means that they actually haul them away physically if it's necessary, and that's caused a lot of trauma in so many children that I've talked to. In our last episode, we met Tina Swithin, an expert on parental alienation and reunification therapy. I've heard stories of children being taken off of school buses on their way home by these transport agents. And many times the transporters or this entire court order for reunification camp also involves a gag order. So the preferred parent or the healthy parent is silenced from speaking out or sharing what has taken place during this transporter process. I also talked to Allie. We heard from her in our previous episode. Then she was called Allie Cable, but she just recently changed her name to Toyos, which is her mother's last name. Allie told me about the horror she went through when a judge ordered that she and her little sister enter reunification therapy. They were 16 and 14 years old. We were taken out the back of the courthouse by security officers. And my sister and I were separated and taken by two transport agents each into different vehicles. We were then taken to St. Louis by car and we were separated for most of the trip to Montana, but we, we didn't know like where we were going what would happen to us when we got there, or, you know, I didn't know if I would see my sister again. Yeah, it, it was terrifying, like, not knowing what was going to happen to you. Like, at that point, I knew that they, you know, had the power to do anything that they wanted, and they, whoever, you know, was taking us now had the court's permission to basically kidnap us, 
and it was really terrifying. You were being treated like a criminal, like you had done something wrong. Exactly, yeah. There was actually one instance where we were in the car on the way to St. Louis, and there was a bug like near my ankle. I reached down to, you know, kind of shoo it away, and they thought I had pulled a knife out of my shoe, and I was going to use it on them. And I saw them texting about it, and I tried to tell them, like, no, I don't. You know, I don't have a knife or anything like that. Transport agents like the ones who took Allie away, they also take adults to rehab. So you can imagine what kind of hostility and resistance they're used to dealing with. So I keep wondering, are these really the right people we want to handle children? Now, normally, people who cross state lines with a random child can be charged with human trafficking. But family court laws allow people to swap control over kids at will. Tina Swithin explained it this way. The way they avoid charges of human trafficking is that guardianship is transferred at each leg of this operation. So the transporters, when they show up to take the child, have legal guardianship and a court order to take the child. And then the guardianship is transferred to the reunification camp. I get that we're used to dismissing children's agency and autonomy in our society. But this is just bizarre. I mean, this blasé way that complete strangers hand off total control over these kids. The power over their movement, their space, their privacy, their contact with the outside world, everything. It's really terrifying because you have no idea what's going to happen to you. I honestly thought that they were going to take us somewhere and, like, I don't know, do electroshock therapy or something to try to get us to be compliant. The whole transportation journey, like, really, I guess, kind of primes kids and threatens them so that they're so exhausted and anxious and depressed by the time that they get to the program that it's easier to make them comply. You're stripped of your power, you know, like everything going into those camps. I didn't have my phone. I didn't have like my own clothes. I didn't have anything. Ali is now part of an organization called the Center for Judicial Excellence. That's a group that's fighting family court practices that harm children. She's a youth advocate for the group. And lately, she's been focused on two kids who went through the same thing as she did. 15-year-old Maya and her 11-year-old brother, Sebastian. They were taken away from their grandmother's house in Santa Cruz last year on October 21st. Their removal was captured on video We'll get into that, but first, I want to warn you that this gets really tough to hear. So it started with a video from Maya and Sebastian that they sent out over Instagram. Hi, my name is Maya. I just wanted to talk about what's going on with me and my family right now because we really need help. For the past about over a year now, me and my brother have been trying to escape our mother, our abuser. 
They're looking down into the phone, hugging each other. They're going to take us away. And if they take us away, I don't think they'll ever get back here. And I'm really, really scared. And I'm going to take them to like a reunification camp or something where we won't be able to see any of my family. Please help us. And please God help us and just stay outside and please don't leave and just be there because that's the most helpful thing you could do. Not long after they posted the video, Maya's friends came to the house. And that's when we get to see what happens next. At least three separate recordings caught the scene from three different angles. And the whole thing lasted just about nine minutes. Nothing you say is going to change our minds or our mind. We're not going with you ever. It's nighttime and we see an open garage door. Maya and Sebastian are against the back of the wall, clinging onto each other. Then three really large transport agents walk towards them. We are very, very aware. Then leave. Then fucking leave. Maya, we can't do that. You're a human being. You can physically walk down the driveway. You are capable of doing that, so do that. If you have any ounce of goodness in you, walk down that driveway and leave us alone. And don't put us back with a freaking child molester. One of the transporters who walks into the garage door folds down a parked car's side mirror so it's out of the way, kind of like he's anticipating a fight. We can all see that. Yeah. We all know that you don't want to go. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, this is something that is going to happen. You're fucking kidnapping me. That's what you're doing. That's what you're doing right now. You're me. Eventually, the transporters, they totally lose patience and they grab the kids. <laughs> Sebastian is picked up off his feet by one transporter and the two others grab Maya around her torso and her ankles and they pick her up and carry her down the driveway. Meanwhile, her top is being pulled up around her neck, and her pants are being pulled down past her hips. You're pulling off my pants! Hey, they're undressing her! Excuse me, they're undressing her! She's shoved feet first into the back seat of this vehicle, and that's when her head hits the door frame. Oh my god, they put the pants down. Fucking help her! Get off of it! Did you catch that? Someone said the cops are doing nothing. That's because the Santa Cruz police officers are standing right there. They're watching. You'd think that they'd step up if a kid is being dragged away and saying they're being kidnapped. But no, they're there to keep the peace and to protect the transporters. Imagine if you saw a kid being taken away screaming, I'm being kidnapped. What would you do? Sebastian is just 11. Remember what it was like to be 11? You're just figuring out the world. You're feeling a little autonomy. 
how can this possibly be therapeutic? I asked Catherine Barrett for her take. She's a licensed clinical forensic psychologist based in Los Angeles. I don't know if you've seen the videos of children being forcibly taken away by transporters to get to their unification. So these very physically pinning them down, grabbing them while they're fighting, kicking and screaming. What toll does that take on a child? It's kidnapping. You know, when I worked with drug and alcohol offenders for a long time, these were folks, many of them who grew up without much of a a chance at life. They ended up getting arrested at a young age, mostly men of color who ended up getting ridiculous sentences that no white person ever would have gotten. And I would ask them, I would say, what was the most traumatic part of this for you? Was it prison? Was it the arrest? And we would have to process the arrest. And these were big, strong dudes that have endured so much trauma. And for some of them, most of the trauma was in the arrest and what happened to them and the power and control and losing their autonomy and their sense of self-empowerment in that moment, you know, forced in, arms broken, necks bent, spit on, everything you can imagine. When I watch these videos, these kids aren't even adults. So if that is happening to a 35-year-old man who's lived in harsh neighborhoods and have had to endure a lot of things and that traumatized them, I can only imagine a child who has never even seen that side of life, perhaps, maybe they have, what that type of kidnapping, interrogation, arrest, what that does to a child long-term, how they believe that builds trust, how they believe that can rebuild a relationship, to me is so astounding, it's so abusive, it's criminal. And these are people who are saying that they have the best interest of the child in mind. I'd like to see some research on how they got there. The transporters work for a company called Assisted Intervention, Inc. The company's web page says their mission is to, quote, provide an intervention and transport experience that is comforting for the whole family while ensuring that their child is afforded a safe and positive transition through careful planning and considerate attention to the specific needs of the adolescent, end quote. That didn't look like what I saw at all. Obviously, I had a bunch of questions for this company, but in response to an interview request, I just got a very brief email. It read, quote, the video shows an incomplete picture of the events. Circumstances like this one are complex. We have no further comment at this time, end quote. Yeah, the situation really is complex, But what was incomplete about the removal? And again, it was entirely captured from start to finish from three different angles. And hitting a little girl's head on a car door? That's pretty straightforward. So there's no way for Maya and Sebastian's supporters to know exactly what happened to them after they were picked up. 
But Allie's got a pretty good idea, because it's likely very close to what happened to her and her sister. Allie and her sister were dropped off at a hotel called The Come On In in Bozeman, Montana. They went through a complete loss of basic human rights to get there, but once they got there, it just got worse. They were brought into a hotel room that joined up with their father and stepmother's room, and they weren't allowed to close any doors, even the bathroom door. That was actually very terrifying for me because my father had always, always walked in on me when I was in the shower. And now he literally had like an excuse to do it. Why would a 16-year-old girl be forced to leave a bathroom door open? What kind of message does that send? That a father should have complete ownership over their daughter? Even though Allie and her sister were taken to Montana, the company that's running this reunification therapy is actually based in the Bay Area. It's called Family Bridges, and it's been operating since 1991. The founder of the program is Randy Rand. He doesn't have an excellent reputation in this field. In 2009, the California Board of Psychology disciplined Rand for unprofessional conduct, gross negligence, violation of laws governing the practice of psychology, and dishonesty. Still, though, Rand was there when Allie and her sister went through this therapy. He wasn't allowed to conduct the therapy, but he was there to observe. The program started with a four-day stay at this hotel that cost the parents somewhere between $25,000 and $40,000. That's according to the company website. And again, when it's court-ordered, both parents are on the hook for that bill, whether they consented to it or not. It's crazy to me how how people can make money on the suffering of children and just be so okay with themselves. It does not make any type of sense to me that people could do that. So the therapy begins by reading a court order to the girls. It felt like some form of intimidation, Ali said. It explained that the girls were in this program because their mother made them lie about the abuse from their dad. I tried to tell them, you know, our father is abusive and I don't feel safe living with him. And they dismissed that immediately and said that I was lying and that I had been brainwashed into thinking that I was abused. And so my sister and I were not complying with their program the first day. This apparent lack of cooperation triggered the next phase of the program, threats, like being sent to a wilderness camp. These kinds of camps are part of what's called the troubled teen industry, and they got in a lot of criticism. The most famous troubled teen camp survivor is Paris Hilton. She came out publicly about her ordeal a few years ago. Here she is on Good Morning America. Children deserve to be treated like human beings. These kids are treated worse than someone would be in prison. It was the most painful and traumatic experience of my life. Just every day wishing that I would wake up from this nightmare, being physically abused, yelled at, 
restrained, locked in rooms, forced medication, being watched by male staff while I would take a shower. I had basically no human rights. So Ali had heard all about these camps, and the idea of going there petrified her. But that was just one of the threats. They told us that we would be sent to behavioral, like hospitals or facilities, psychiatric wards, or that we'd be sent to foster care if we didn't comply with the program. They told us to write a note to our mom saying that we like chose to go to a wilderness camp or psychiatric facility instead of complying with the program. In my mind, that was going to be the last communication that she had from me until I turned 18. That really broke me. I could imagine her reading it and then knowing that she wouldn't see her kids again until they each aged out of the system. And I was 16 at that time and my sister was 14. So I also wouldn't see my sister again until she turned 18. And so I think that really broke us down. So they complied. And the next four days were spent in a hotel conference room being grilled and subjected to psychological techniques to convince them that their abuse never happened. They showed us a video of a man talking about how he thought when he was a kid that he was sexually abused by his father. And they described the sexual abuse in great detail. And then at the end, he was saying, but now I know that that's not true. And I was just brainwashed the whole time. All of the content that they showed was meant to like discredit our perception of the world and our experiences. There was another video called The Wave. It's a documentary about like a 1960s California high school teacher, and he used his class as an experiment to demonstrate how easy it was to fall in the mindset of the Nazi regime during the Second World War. And so basically the workshop leaders were trying to tell us that we were tricked into believing that we were abused and that, you know, we were, yeah, I, I'm not sure why they were trying to compare like child abuse survivors to Nazis. It sounds like no big deal, but you're forced to say good things about your abuser and you're forced to like talk about why your abuser is a really good person. And that, you know, is really, I guess I would call it self-betrayal trauma. You know, you're forcing yourself to go back and make nice with your abuser so that you can stay safe. And that's just really even traumatizing going forward. Like now I feel like I second guess whether or not I feel unsafe around someone when I so clearly do just because I've been told for so long that no he's not an abuser he's a nice person you know and I was forced to say things like that after four days of this they were allowed to leave but first the program's leaders needed to gather data the family bridges website claims that their program is quote the only program whose effectiveness has been documented with peer-reviewed research using reliable measures. But Ali's dubious. They actually had an exit interview at the end of the workshop. 
basically where <laughs> we were asked to review like the performance of the workshop and and you know write down how the leaders were and what the quality of the reunification camp was like and they said it was you know entirely anonymous but the workshop leaders were walking around looking over our shoulders that data was very much coerced and in no way shows the success of the program. From the extensive research I've done, there really is no way to measure the success of these programs. A 2018 NBC Bay Area investigation concluded the same thing. We reached out to family courts in all nine Bay Area counties. We wanted to find out whether they send children to these programs and how they track the outcomes. Sonoma County didn't answer. Three counties told us they have not ordered children into these programs. Five counties, though, told us they don't track this information at all. Once they were finally allowed to leave, that reunification company kept tabs on the girls. They wanted to make sure that they were behaving. And their dad took every opportunity to hold that over them. Nothing had changed from since when we were living with him last. And he was still very abusive and controlling and angry. And he would obviously take that out on us. But, you know, this time we just weren't allowed to say anything. And if we did say anything about his abuse or his behavior, we knew that the court order would be extended, the no contact order. And so he would say, like, oh, I'm talking to Randy Graham this week. You know, you better be, like, good. I'll remember what you do. So during Allie's so-called aftercare therapy, she had a reunification therapist dedicated to maintaining her relationship with her dad. But that therapist eventually picked up on the dad's behavior, and she felt like something was off. The other piece about this, too, is that the dad stopped paying bills on time, so it seemed like the money was drying up on his end. I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but that's when the reunification therapist finally let Allie contact her mother. She hadn't talked to her in seven months. Even then, though, she still wasn't allowed to leave her father's custody. That only happened when she finally turned 18. But she couldn't even celebrate that moment. It was really hard for me to choose to do that and leave my sister behind. She had to be with my father for another year. So back to Maya and Sebastian, Allie isn't the only one trying to draw attention to their situation. Since they were taken, the videos showing their removal have gone viral. What do we want? Justice! When do we want it? Now! And it seems to have galvanized a movement. Justice! When do we want it? Now! Their friends protested in front of a Santa Cruz courthouse. And I did try to call Maya and Sebastian's dad, but he was too afraid to talk to me because he's under a gag order. The case's judge, Rebecca Connolly, believed what was said about him, that he brainwashed the kids into saying their mom abuses them. And if he talks about any of that, 
the judge is going to extend his no-contact order. And it turns out that after Maya and Sebastian were taken, they were transported to a reunification camp in Los Angeles. It's led by this woman named Lynn Steinberg. She served as an expert witness in Maya and Sebastian's case. And then the judge ordered that the kids attend her reunification therapy. Again, a program that costs at least tens of thousands of dollars. While protests were happening in Santa Cruz, parallel protests were happening at Lynn Steinberg's office. In response to the protests, Steinberg wrote Facebook posts, disparaging and dismissing the protesters as, quote, flying monkeys, hate mongers, and hate groups. Her Facebook page also included a post that claimed to be from 11-year-old Sebastian. It read, quote, This is Sebastian. I'm not in any harm. I'm doing fine right now, and the people who transported me are so nice, and I'm having fun. Steinberg also talked about Maya and Sebastian on a podcast called Slam the Gavel. We get a company called Assisted Interventions to step in and transport the children to my office. And they usually transport individuals, adults too, who are going to rehab. So that gives you an idea of the kind of work that they do. When the kids arrived at my office, they were in perfectly fine shape. They were friends with the transporters, and there were no marks on them, although they had bitten and kicked and bruised the people who transported them here. She insisted that Maya and Sebastian's dad instigated all this hostility from the protesters and from the people who were there to witness the transport. She said that he orchestrated the kids' Instagram video pleas for help, that he recorded their removal. I'm not sure why she thinks that, but as far as I could see, I didn't catch a hint of their dad's presence in any of the videos or protests. I don't know what she's thinking because she didn't want to talk to me. So the dad is banned from talking about the case, but the kids' therapist can discuss it publicly? She can totally badmouth the dad in public while he's barred from defending himself? Steinberg was also joined on that podcast by a man named Brian Ludmer. I talked to him in the last episode. He's a Toronto-based lawyer that specializes in parental alienation. He also fully supports reunification therapy. So when I asked for his reaction to the way that Maya and Sebastian were manhandled, he quickly pivoted. Obviously not how we want the healing process to start, but the interesting question when you have more experience in the area is why was a whole group of people there to witness an already difficult transition Number two, why were people filming? And number three, the most important thing, why did the children behave that way? Why didn't the children simply say, okay, somebody at a higher pay grade, a judge, heard everybody else, and this is what they decided, and it is antisocial behavior to defy a court order. I think that, and I know because I saw the video, that what Maya was and her brother were 
opposing so vehemently, why they were behaving, as you put it, in an antisocial fashion, was to protect themselves from being molested. That is what okay. they contend. And that's why they right. were fighting so, it off so, so, so vehemently. His response to that comment was also to pivot, this time to claims against Maya and Sebastian's dad. Obviously, there was abusive behavior coming from the father because we don't say, hey, look, you need a temporary timeout lightly. Is it me or does that sound like circular thinking? Like, we know he's guilty because we say he's guilty. Even though Maya and Sebastian's dad hasn't talked publicly about this case, things still haven't changed. The three-month visitation ban that was supposed to expire on January 30th, it's been extended. During a hearing on February 7th, the judge continued the case out to April. The father's attorney, Gregory Gillette, He's filed a request to disqualify the judge. The lawyer says that the judge noticed the public outcry about her order to transport the kids, and that led her to pressure the dad to close the hearings to the public. But that was in her own self-interest, which goes against the spirit of court proceedings. He also said that the judge suggested legal maneuvers for the opposing side, so that shows bias on her part. Meanwhile, the father's side of the family only knows that Maya and Sebastian are living at an undisclosed location out of state. That's according to reporting by the Santa Cruz Sentinel. That forensic psychiatrist Catherine Barrett, she urges us not to pivot away from kids who are alleging abuse. Like there's something going on that they are seriously avoiding, if they know that a chance of them being taken away that way and they still won't see that parent, maybe we need to listen to that child and understand why they don't want to be in a room or reunifying with that parent. If they will go to such a length that they end up getting kidnapped and forced into a situation, it, it just, it makes zero sense to me. To me, it is just so counter to what it is that we're trying to do. You put a child in a room like that, they're not going to want to talk. They're shut down, they're exhausted, and they're resistant. And guess what that does? It reaffirms to the court that they have been, quote unquote, alienated. It is a setup because the child isn't going to acquiesce in that moment. They don't want to be in the room with that parent. It's not that they've been alienated. It's that they don't feel safe with that parent. They haven't agreed to this. So they're resisting. They're trying to find the little bit of autonomy that they have. But then the opposing side uses that and weaponizes it and said, see, he won't even talk to his mom or he won't even talk to his dad. Clearly, there's alienation going on. Barrett said the entire approach is completely counterproductive. Let's just say the child was being coached and they needed to reunify with this parent that they now believe is a bad parent. Let's just go with that crazy narrative. It still would not be in the best interest of the child to put them in a room with a parent they don't have a relationship with. Reunification to me is nothing but a forced 
an unethical way of getting a child to confess to something no differently than they would in the position that they're apparently trying to get the child out of. It's another form of coaching. So the best way to work with the child is allow them to continue to work with the therapist that they've been working with to build that relationship, that safety, that security, to build autonomy. For Maya and Sebastian, their removal is going to stick with them for a long time. But that quick-thinking Instagram action and the videos that went viral, that actually really paid off. It got the attention of the press and local politicians. A child custody battle turning physical as two siblings are violently removed from a Santa Cruz home, and it was all caught on video. Santa Cruz's mayor at the time, and also a county supervisor, they held a joint press conference on a windy day outside the kids' grandmother's home. The violent force used by Assisted Interventions, Inc. was and is completely unacceptable. This should never happen in Santa Cruz or anywhere else, ever. I don't think anyone who watched the video of Maya and Sebastian being violently ripped from the grandmother's home can say this transport company working for this reunification camp was operating in the best interest of Maya and Sebastian. It was shocking. It was gutting. Our hearts are with the family and friends. We've heard your pleas. We share your concerns. We want Maya and Sebastian to be safe and no other child to go through this. We will take action. The mayor and supervisor, they requested a use of force investigation into the removal of Maya and Sebastian. So I reached out to the Santa Cruz police for comment. John Bush, the deputy chief of police there, he sent me an email. He said that since no officer used force, there wouldn't be any use of force investigation. He also said that a review by their professional standards unit determined that no officer on site violated any policies. But he did say that the video created, quote, an opportunity for us to work with our court system and justice partners to explore better options in the future. The supervisors for Santa Cruz, they also made some changes to their laws after the videos went viral. On November 15th, they unanimously passed a resolution urging the county to adopt a no-touch policy on these transport agents. Social services agencies for Santa Cruz They also have this no-touch policy for kids. And so the Santa Cruz supervisors, they just want the same to be imposed on these private companies. And the supervisors also wanted the county to impose a ban on reunification camps altogether. Other California politicians, they've also looked into banning reunification camps, or at the very least, licensing them and regulating them. The state's childcare and healthcare centers and schools, they're all licensed and regulated. But reunification camps, they're not. After hearing about the county's resolution, I wanted to hear from the Santa Cruz District State Representative, John Laird. I wanted to see whether anything was happening on that front. So I got another email, this time from the chief of staff for John Laird, Richard Stapler. Stapler called it an unfortunate issue. He said that they met with social services experts and some of the people involved in Maya and Sebastian's case, 
He didn't specify who he talked to exactly, but he said they're working on it. He said there's plenty of time left on the legislative calendar to address this issue. Okay, we've processed a lot in these four episodes. We heard that family courts routinely dismiss abuse allegations from women who truly are victims of coercive control. We heard that kids are abused and even murdered because judges are dubious of abuse and they order shared custody. And we heard that the California Judicial Council wants nothing to do with training judges on family violence. We know that because the group actually helped to block a law that would have required it. And we learned that there's a lot of money to be made in defending abuse allegations and in forcing kids to say they were lying about abuse. So now that I've come to the end of this series, I have three main takeaways. First, Family court judges have too much unchecked power. There are definitely some great family judges out there who definitely want the best for children and for families. But no matter how decent a judge may be, they should all face some consequences for sending a child into the hands of an abuser. I mean, right now, people can file an ethics complaint against a judge, but As I covered in my last episode, California's Complaint Review Committee is pretty badly managed and tends to be biased in favor of judges. There are really important reasons why a judge can't get sued, but the way things are now, they're not even expected to try to do better or even, like, basically apologize. So why would judges make better decisions, make more educated decisions, if they don't have to even face the slightest bit of accountability. So my second takeaway is that family courts, they tend to use the same small group of evaluators and experts. And that's a problem. These people are not motivated to tell courts about updated research on domestic abuse and child abuse. So that means that unscientific theories, like parental alienation, These have more influence on court decisions than specialized research, which exists and can debunk a lot of what this parental alienation theory states. In other types of cases, lawyers would look for the research. But in these cases, victims' lawyers, what they do is they actually discourage their clients from speaking up about abuse. Why? Because they know It's just going to discredit them with the court. And so my third takeaway. Well, actually, it's more of a question. Do we care about our children in this country? After all these months of research and interviews, I have to say, I just don't know anymore. We stand by and watch kids being traumatized right before our very eyes. We send kids into harm's way. And we definitely prioritize an adult's right to physically dominate, overpower, control a child. 
over the child's dignity or bodily autonomy or basic human right. So I've come to believe that what we need is a children's Bill of Rights. This isn't a new idea. And the way advocates explain it is that it would give kids the constitutional right to be free from all forms of abuse or neglect. It would also give kids a say in the decisions that affect their life. And then they'd also have a right to legal representation of their own, a child advocate. Maybe then we could start thinking of kids as individual human beings rather than the possession of their parents or any random legal guardian. Civic comes to you from KSFP LP 102.5 FM in San Francisco. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Additional music was supplied by the Blue Dot Sessions. Our team includes producer Leanna Wilcox and contributor Mel Baker, who is also the program director at KSFP. Cynthia Chavez is our vocal coach. Civic airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. on KSFP. New episodes on Thursdays. Subscribe to our podcast by looking for Civic from the San Francisco Public Press on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sylvie Sturm. Thanks for listening.